And if you think this is the ideal, if you think this is as good as it can get, um, that is really a pathetic perspective. So I do think that we have to keep that in mind, that we're trying, as Tom Friedman likes to say, you know, perfect is not on the menu here. That's not what we're talking about. It's how do we improve the, um, over the really dire quality of care that exists right now for most people. And can we do better than that? And I do think we can. Thank you so much for your time. I, I mean, I can imagine, um, I can imagine lots of people want to talk to you. And I was so thrilled because as I mentioned in the email, I just, I cannot think of another person that has the breadth and depth of experience that you have with mental health and mental illness. Um, from, you know, personal experience and um, family experience, which many of us have, uh, to being a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, uh, researcher, head of National Health, uh, National Institutes of Mental Health, a startup entrepreneur, founder, um, and then, of course, at government level as the California czar for mental health. Um, how do those perspectives fit together? I'm so intrigued. I'm, like As you went through your career, and I, you just have such a beautiful explanation um, in your book, but um, how do they work with each other? Is there any one perspective that you keep coming back to that it's that sort of anchors the rest or informs the rest or you know are, are they just sort of mutually beneficial it's a question that partly just reflects uh, my age <laughs> i've been around a long time and i've been doing this in one form or another for five decades and, and i think most of it comes out of just the passion for individuals that i've known either in my family or close friends who've struggle with some aspect of mental illness. And then just for me, um, just the curiosity of trying to understand what is this about? Um, so I think the grounding really comes out of that, out of that um, lived experience. The part of what continues to drive me still is the mystery of it all and how difficult it is to really understand what these disorders are, are about. Um, and I, I suppose the, the part of my career that I still keep coming back to is the science that I, you know, at the end of the day, I think I'm fundamentally a scientist more than anything else. And so the idea that there is a truth there, there is a, you know, something that we need to keep exploring to, to understand better um, is always a, a driving force. And curiosity, especially as you age, is a really good thing to hold on to. Um, somebody once, oh, when I was about your age, I had um, a friend who was in her late 80s and still very active. And we went out to dinner one night and I said, how do you do it? I mean, how do you keep going? And still, still, you're still involved. She said, it's just two things. She said, I'm curious and I'm furious. And I think that's a pretty good mantra to continue that is that is fantastic. I love that. I think that's that. I think when I think about when people ask me why I founded the company, I think I, I there's I don't know how to express this more eloquently, but there's just I do think it, it came from this just like a discontent, like a, an, an annoyance about there's something not quite right here. And then that coupled with the creativity means that, you know, the best way to complain is to make something. 
um, which really is uh, excellent for, you know, for founding a company. But I couldn't agree with you more. A curiosity is really interesting because you could get burnt out, I think, in this field um, in, in, in lots of ways. It is really hard. It is very complex. And I think that's that's what was um, that's very clear in your book, Healing. We're obviously talking about um, technology here today because a lot of and there was a you know this beautiful chapter on your vision around a sort of a tech enabled future um, for mental health care delivery and the role it plays. And you're saying it's not going to be the panacea, obviously. Um, but it can enable things. And I just, um, I wonder if I could read you an excerpt. You mentioned Carl Sagan uh, from his um, Natural History written in 1975. And he says, no such computer program is adequate for psychiatric use today, but the same can be remarked about some human psychotherapists. In a period when more and more people in our society seem to be in need of psychiatric counseling, and when time sharing computers is widespread, I can imagine the development of a network of computer psychotherapeutic terminals, something like arrays of large telephone booths in which for a few dollars a session, we would be able to talk with an attentive, tested and largely non-directive psychotherapist. So that was written in 1975, 50 years ago. How close do you think we are today? Like how on the money was Carl Sagan in terms of a vision there? Well, so a lot has happened recently, and I think if you look back to 10 years ago, um, we were just at the very beginning of what I think history will see as a turning point for the way we think about um, interventions in mental health. It, you know, I, I'm really interested in what machine learning and AI can do. Um, I don't know that the Carl Sagan vision, the idea that we will have uh, a vast network of intelligent bots that can serve as psychotherapist is where I would start. What excites me about the technology we have now is the way it's able to improve what humans do. And in my first glimpse of this, I've had several kind of entrees into this, but um, in the company that I'm in now, Avana Health, we're taking on very complicated patients, people yeah. who have been ill for many, many years and have had many hospitalizations. And just the ability to be able to look at a vast medical record and reduce that to three or 400 word summaries saves hours mm -hmm. of work. It's just remarkable. And to be able to do that, you know, pretty accurately within seconds, it's a commodity, it's not complicated. That's great. The idea that right. when you interview someone, whether you're a caseworker case or a psychiatrist, that you can have a digital scribe that captures that interview with fidelity and then has a bunch of tools that allow you to assess um, the sentiment, the coherence, the you know, whole range of different aspects of that interview including the quality of the rapport and the therapeutic alliance um, and that that's really a commodity as well. I mean, that's pretty amazing to realize where we're at. So my excitement about a lot of this stuff is actually, it's a little bit prosaic, but it's, I think, really important to take the things that are getting in the way right now and to allow us 
to take the current workforce and make them much, much better. You know, that's not really a pie in the sky fantasy. That's very doable with the tools we have right now. That's so exciting. That's no, no clinician went to school to, to, to fill out the EMR or to write letters to the insurance companies to convince them to cover a patient. You know, that's not why you train clinically, right? It's, it's to be present with the patient. And I have to say, though, Alison, we had to be really careful here because we would have the same conversations 20 years ago, 20 or 30 years ago, with the EHR coming into primary care and into medicine. Mm. And it's been the worst thing. <laughs> like, you know, all of the digital transformation of healthcare has destroyed the experience of providers in healthcare. So, well, that's right. It's, it's created a barrier, not a right. facilitator. It's actually created this, yeah, this thing that is literally between you and your patient um, yeah so yeah, we've got to get you know and it's a kind of wonderful aikido idea that you you know you take technology to fix the problem that technology created and that's what i'm hoping we can do here we're seeing the first glimpses of that already um and in the kinds of digital digital scribes that are being already adopted they're not perfect um, they need some work mm -hmm. but that's the kind of promise that I think we can begin to look at. I was just thinking about this because my wife went in for an MRI last week and it was one of these high field strength dye enhanced MRIs because she had some vascular problems. And, and we have this wonderful system of healthcare through Stanford where we get access to all the medical records and they provided a report of the MRI, but it was completely indecipherable. I mean, there was, you know, the report was written for a hmm. uh, provider um, and it was nice that she had access to that and I could of course read it and interpret it but why not mm -hmm. and GPT-4 right. can do this in a nanosecond why not write that write that report in multiple languages one for the payer one for the provider one for the patient one for the patient's family so all of that capacity is there we're just not using it and those are the kinds of things which I think we should be doing immediately that we're AI really is very, very good. Well, I was just hearing on the radio this morning people talking about when they, when you know you're getting a difficult diagnosis and your sort of brain goes blank and so people are trying to record or they bring someone with them to be in the appointment with them or try and write things down but it's a real problem. We, we know that when people are engaged in their own care they can tend to do better but it's very hard to engage if you know, there's an awful lot of complicated feelings that are coming up life changes that may need to happen and um, do you think tech tech and ai but tech broadly might be able to to help there in meaningful ways yeah absolutely so leading question you know, we've, <laughs> very leading. we've covered sort of the first part of this in my own head which is you know some of it is just reporting translations documentation uh capturing interviews um i think the next stage of that is actually providing more decision support for both patients and providers. So what could that look like? Well, it could take the interview and provide those insights that right now are still being developed, but whether you call those vocal biomarkers or whether you think about this as um, just understanding the therapeutic alliance, those are really kind of exciting and I think useful things. It, it's different, you know, when we get into the mental health space because there so much of what we're talking about is just communication and understanding and being able to be empathic and to listen. Um, so you can go, I think, much, much further 
with AI in our space than you would in gastroenterology or even in neurology. So here I think it gets really exciting. And this is kind of going back to the original Carl Sagan idea, but could we actually get to a point where we can develop a kind of tech-enabled uh, psychotherapy system? Mm. And there, I think, you know, we're already doing this in lots of ways. You'll see the beginnings of it, I think, are going to be in, um, in training and in, in helping uh, mm. new therapists uh, by having very smart avatars that can give them the experience of seeing patients in a way that, you know, is, gives you all the complications and lots of experiences and challenges. So that's kind of an easy one that I think will be fun to develop and see. And there are already startups that are playing with that. Mm. I guess the real question is, and it's kind of the Wobot question, can you get to the point where you are really, where instead of it being necessarily tech-enabled treatment, is it is it provider or human-enabled tech treatment, you know, where, where the tech is taking on most of the heavy lifting. And I think that's what we're learning and trying to figure out how is that going to work and where will that work and where it will not work. Um, and I, I just don't know yet that we're, mm. we've got that story, I think, is still being written. But it's super interesting to think about. Are there any innovations on the horizon that you're particularly excited about? Or are or conversely, sure. are there any innovations on the horizon that you think, oh, no, that's never going to work. We should never even delve into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, so I tend to be an optimist. So I tend to be on the first camp of thing, excited about things. Looping back to this conversation we've been having already about what, you know, how to feel about all of this. And, you know, are we, are we stepping into something we'll regret? I've been to several of these um, panels and conversations and salons and meetings around this topic. And it's just been fascinating to me because um, they always start in the same way, which is people who are well-meaning but not in healthcare saying, I'm so concerned about um, the ways in which AI will hallucinate and destroy, you know, the the fidelity of, of good care. Those are people who don't really know much about what healthcare looks like. So to me, and in every one of these meetings, we this happens, the people who actually are in the trenches are always saying, compared to what? You know, look at what happens right now, today. And if you think this is the ideal, if you think this is as good as it can get, um, that is really a pathetic perspective. As Tom Friedman likes to say, you know, perfect is not on the menu here. That's not what yeah, we're talking right. about. It's how do we improve right. the, um, right. over the really dire quality of care that exists right now for most people? And can we do better than that? And I do think we can. That's right. I do. I think one of the bigger risks is that that sort of narrative, you know, oh, the hallucinations and the problems and things, it, it does... Um, it starts to undermine public confidence in, in the ability of these tools to help. And, you know, uh, everything is tarred with the same brush. And actually, a lot of it comes down to the nuance of design and thoughtful teams and leadership. And, you know, what is the problem that any tech or any service is trying to solve? How well does it do that? You know, what's the risk benefit ratio rather than 
how good is a technology in and of itself? I mean, you really, I believe that you have to look at what's it trying to do? What is the intended use? And how good is it at that, at delivering on that? What's the risk-benefit ratio of that? Rather so how than, have you done that? So it's like at Mobot, I mean, this is sort of right in your wheelhouse. You've had to be very clear about this is, it's for this and not for that. How have exactly. you spelled that out? It's, oh, and it's a constant, it's constantly sort of, you know, communicating that and over communicating that. And then, and then obviously we, we, we try and um, obviously we, we have a full sort of program of research and we try and publish in the literature to communicate those things, you know, to show both an openness to understanding where the limitations may be and where the benefits are but also to actively explore those things such that you can you know, feed back that insight into the product development process. And so I agree with you. I feel like fundamentally there's a science. Science is the only process that enables us to push the needle forward in a responsible sort of predictable way. Just the last year, we have seen this tremendous advancement in the technology tools that are available to us. The question is, how are we going to apply them in care? Where are the pitfalls? And, you know, for us, we have a specific kind of way that we look at that, which is what is the benefit or risk to the person? How are they experiencing um, delivery of care in this way? What kind of care can you deliver? And what, you know, even if it's just a nugget thereof, what is what does that look like? And where should we not be veering into? So I think it's it's shifting sands for us and it's trying to, be really good at communication um, but it's a challenge yeah, well, I, I really like that and I think it is clear that you know that's the way this field has to develop is sort of step by step it's not it's not going to be the answer for all problems but there are definitely issues where it can help and I think you know we should be really clear that um, the current state of mental health care is not great and there are just really important issues that we haven't addressed with the current tools that we've got. Perhaps the most obvious being that most people who could and should be in care don't get it. That's the other thing I would say is that when people do get care, and this is kind of where you were going and uh, talking about Wobot, we know the quality of care is not great. And for many, many people, it's not only that it's delayed, but what they get is not in any way um, a reflection of where the science is. And so to have something that at least is based on the evidence we have about what works is really important. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. say this so much in other areas of medicine. I think in most of medicine, we have a more scientifically based set of interventions. But when you go out into the world and you ask, what are people getting when they reach out for a therapist? It's usually what the therapist wants to do. It's not necessarily what the patient needs. And, and I think we have to get honest about that at some point and make it um, clear that this is a field that actually where we need to raise the bar for quality. You'll hear a lot in um, the conversations now about technology and about startups that it's all about access and we're improving access. But if it's access to crap, that's not really, that's, that's not right. progress, right? So you that's want to right. make sure that's that right. it's not only that you're democratizing care, but that you're improving the quality of what people are receiving. And that that's a place where um, 
having standards and having, um, and again, technology can help having measurement, beginning to look at outcomes um, and ultimately even reimbursing for outcomes becomes really the way that progress can happen. Yeah, I was just talking about this this morning about the variation in quality issue. You would never have the case where an oncologist can just do what they feel is right with the patient. You know, you would obviously want them to do the most, the latest evidence-based, you know, most likely to help you given your specific um, presentation uh, kind of problem. And we don't seem, can't seem to get there with healthcare. I think less than 10% of clinical psychologists practice measurement-based care and about 20% of psychiatrists do, even though it can improve outcomes by about 50%. The current state of play ain't great. It's not really um, where we want to be. And it it does frustrate me a little bit, going back to Curious and Furious, that so much of our field is resistant to change. They, they really are so hostile to the idea that it could be better. Um, and I think in some ways they don't want to know. Um, they don't really want to know what's going on. But it's it's going to be important, I think, for for policy, for parity, for reimbursement, for the growth of the field, and for the really the survival of the field that ultimately it becomes accountable. And there's not been accountability in this field whatsoever. Um, I, I'm always kind of struggling with this because, you know, in medicine, we do have accountability. People are held to account for results and it does matter. You get thrown off of a hospital, uh, out of a hospital if you're not following surgical procedures. You you get uh, cited if you're a physician who writes a prescription for Oxycontin when you shouldn't. There, there are a whole bunch of things that we have built into general medical practice that um, ensure that there's a certain standard of, of care. We just don't have that in the mental health space. And I don't think that we want to necessarily adopt a medical model here, but we're going to have to figure out a way to um, improve the quality of care and to have some kind of standards of fidelity. Do you think that the, the failure to consistently measure outcomes has actually hampered innovation in the field? I just think there's a polarity here that people become absolutists about this. And, you know, I think we have to hold two things in our heads at the same time. One is that um, there's a science, scientific foundation that says certain things work better than other things. And um, we ought to be trying to deliver the things that work kind of, you know, evidence-based. I'm not big on that term, but, but that I, is the yeah. term of art. The second thing we have to hold in our heads is that... The, the evidence is pretty good that the therapist is more important than the therapy and that the relationship really does matter. And it's the relationship that allows change in, in many, many aspects. Um, so these are not necessarily opposite conclusions that says that ideally you want both to go together. For our conversation, I think the kind of weird and fascinating question is, can that relationship be tech-enabled in some way? Can the relationship part of this? We just published a paper called Can Digital Make Therapy More Human? Is there some way in which um, going forward, particularly for digital natives, um, having uh, a bot 
in in the loop is going to be helpful and uh, allow the relationship between two humans to become deeper, more honest, and more helpful. Um, at the same time, I guess what I worry about is perpetuating a world in which people go to therapy to have a paid friend, and it's a, a treatment for loneliness that never ends. And that gets us into the whole bind of, um, so why should insurance pay for that? Uh, why would we you know, cover three years of, uh, of hand-holding for somebody who doesn't want to actually um, move on in their lives, those kinds of things. Mm. Um, and obviously the incentives are not there, you know, for the therapist, um, there's not a lot of incentive to end it. And for the patient, there's not a lot of incentive to end it either. So, you know, those are the kinds of places where maybe having a, a bot in the loop instead of a human in the loop helps to sort of provide some guardrails and some standards. I totally agree. I, I think what we're, I don't know if you saw a paper we published a few years ago, but showing um, Wobot had sort of users of Wobot, 36,000 of our users filled out this working alliance inventory and had scores on bond for Wobot that were in the human range, um, but were scoring that after just three to five days of an initial conversation. That's when we first administered the measure. And I think people... I think often mistake that we're trying to replace the humans again it's not about that but it's about creating the necessary condition for change which of course is trust and you know non-judgmental stance and relationship and rapport and and being able to do that quickly we think hopefully enact change quickly one of the things i've thought about i was playing with wobot last night actually and thinking that we talk a lot particularly in the public mental health space the world of serious mental illness and marginalized populations about how for so many people um, the world of mental health care is just not their world. I mean as an example um, in here in California 60% of our children, we have 10 million children, 60% of them are on Medi-Cal which is our Medicaid program in California. 81% of those kids are kids of color, right? Yeah. And very, very few of those families and very few of those kids actually ever get any kind of mental health care, although we know a great many of them need it. And I was beginning to think, could we create the bots? Could we create the kind of robot accessories that are really tuned for different populations? They have the language, they have the smarts, they have the kind of cultural awareness that um, frankly doesn't exist in our current provider population, which is not, you know, 80, 81% people of color, it's like 20% people of color. So is, um, I don't know if that's something you've thought about. We absolutely, like, I think under uh, Athena Robinson's leadership, we have recruited incredibly diverse samples into our studies, and we consistently show that people of color actually have highest uh, bond with Wobot and do sort of are um, are in that group they are the efficient users which was mm. which is really amazing because um it I, it makes sense when you think when you consider how kind of wobot i think shows up as a peer respectful and this is off these are often disenfranchised groups of people right that that haven't maybe have not had great experiences um in the healthcare system it's also 
wonderful to see because I think this, these are groups that haven't traditionally been recruited into studies and so we don't really know a lot um, and so we're very excited about Wobot's potential to engage the, the traditionally thought of as difficult to engage populations right and um, there might be some there's there's certainly I think something interesting there Tom in your book healing you spoke about um, a vision for recovery including people place and purpose I wonder if you'd speak a little bit about that this really tracks back to a concern I had that the field, again, it sort of adopted a medical model, but not in a smart way. So in medicine, you know, our model is basically infectious disease. You, you look for a simple bug and you find a simple drug and you write a prescription and the problem is over. Um, that just doesn't work for us here. Uh, these are far more complicated problems and they require uh, more than just a prescription or, you know, a, a brilliant interpretation, um, something that, you know, Hollywood loves, but it actually doesn't work in real life. Um, it's all about uh, a process. I used to think that that process, which many people will call recovery, was kind of, uh, it was too vague. And I wasn't really um, a believer that that was something that was achievable for a lot of people. But I was, when I was working on the book, I went all around the world talking to smart people. And I was with this street psychiatrist in Los Angeles on Skid Row. Um, and I was asking him about this. He said, it's not that complicated. The recovery is just the three P's. And I thought, all right, you got Paxil, you got Prozac. What's that? Maybe <laughs> the third P could be psychotherapy, but that's kind of a ringer. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's people, place, and purpose. It's, it's, it's social support. It's, mm -hmm. it's having a safe environment. And it's, it's having a reason, a mission, something that you recover for, something you deeply care about. And I realized, gosh, um, we don't talk about any of that. Now, that's not in, um, there's not a CPT code in a reimbursable way of delivering um, the three Ps. And yet that's exactly what people with mental illness needs. It's, it's what we all need, really, right? Social mm -hmm. support, good environment, and a, and a mission. We're really running healthcare as a business. And we've dropped that out of the business model. Well, that is... Fantastic, and I think a, a beautiful conclusion. I was going to ask you, what should we talk about? What should, as a field, we be talking about that we're not? But I think you just answered it. This holistic approach um, to enabling people to get on a path towards recovery and some changes that maybe the field would really benefit from meaningfully. Uh, and things, I, I'm ha delighted to hear that, you you know, a lot of that is is fairly straightforward and known, understood, well understood. Um, anything else that you'd like to conclude with? Well, I do think, and I think I wrote about this in a recent paper, that we have to understand that in terms of technology, we're at the very beginning of something really interesting. And I know people wring their hands about, there's too much hype, we're you know, overstating what it can do. And of course, of course that's true, but as I like to say, this is the first act of a five act play. And we are just finishing that first act. And I think we know, know um, at the end of the first act who, you know, what some of the characters are, what the plot's going to look like. But we have so much to do. We have to develop the regulatory framework for this field, the kind of guidelines for quality and assurance. We have to figure out how to serve people who are currently not being served at all, people who are in the deep end of the pool because they have really serious illnesses. And we have to actually demonstrate that 
all of this works in the way we want it to. And all of that, we've got four more acts to do. And I just, you know, I hope people don't give up because this isn't perfect um, here early in the game. Me too. And well, thank you for leading the way, Tom. And thank you so much for your time today. This was such a wonderful conversation. I just, I'm so honored that you, you shared your time with us. Oh, thanks, Ali. Really a pleasure.